0: And I've asked those of you who've been here the past several weeks to read through the story of Joseph in Genesis. Not all of you have had the opportunity to do that. But I'm going to kind of give you this panoramic, bird's-eye view of this story, especially when you're coming in on this cold. Joseph had three sets of dreams, and Those dreams start in the pit. They lead to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house to prison, from prison to Pharaoh's palace. Those are all Ps. They should be easy to remember. The pit. He had a dream that his uh, brothers would bow down to him, the whole family would bow down to him, and uh, they, they did. They bowed down to him more in Egypt, than any other place. I mean, they didn't bow down to him in the promised land, but uh, they did when he got to Egypt. In prison, the uh, dream of the cupbearer went okay, but not so well for the baker. That led Joseph to appear before the most powerful man on the face of the earth up to that time, because Egypt is a power. And this is where Joseph finds himself, standing before Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams regarding the coming famine. Now that famine has come to the entire area. Jacob and his family are experiencing it. Jacob hears that there is food, there's grain in Egypt, looks at his sons and says, why are you guys just staring at each other? Get on your camels or mules or whatever they rode in those days. You get to Egypt and find us some food. Otherwise, we're going to die. So Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. And they find that uh, he's the second man in charge. If you look at chapter 41, beginning at verse 41... It says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as second in command, and men shouted before him, uh, Make the way or bow down. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of, of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, Potipharah, priest of An, to be his wife, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. And then, of course, it says that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. Um, you know He was 17 years old when he was thrown into the pit. Now if you look at chapter 42, the brothers go to Egypt, and in verse 6 it says, Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. He called them spies, and he then has them go through a series of tests. And what we're going to find here is that these guys who sold their brother Joseph into slavery and figured out, figured that he was out of their lives forever is not out of their lives. He's still in their minds, maybe in their hearts, I don't know. But they feel guilt. And now, for the first time in this entire story, God is mentioned because now they're saying, you know what? God has caught up with us. Look at verse 21 of chapter 42. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And then over to verse 28, it says, Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? They had just declared that there was a brother back in the Promised Land and a father And Joseph says, go back, get your brother. And uh, they're saying, no way, we can't do that. It's going to break dad's heart. Uh, Dad's not going to allow it to happen. Jacob relents, probably because he recognizes the absolute dilemma that they are in. They're starving to death. They make a second journey. Chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy, that's Benjamin, along with me. Why is Benjamin the favored? Because Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel. Rachel was the favored wife. I mean, this is kind of how it played out. Jacob was very honest about this. I love Rachel. I loved Rachel. Leah, not so much. And when Jacob or Joseph was born, he's dancing around, I've got a son, I've got a son, and there are ten boys looking at him and going, well, who are we? The hatred begins. And of course, this begins, this, this, the, the depths and the darkness of being sold into slavery. And all for the life of them couldn't figure out how any good could come out of that. And that's kind of where we're left as well. Judah... Uh, Said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And if I don't bring him back to you and let him uh, set him here before you, I'll bear the blame before you all of my life. And then, of course, Jacob allows Benjamin to go. And he says in verse fourteen, "And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will not let your brother, uh, let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, I'm bereaved. I am bereaved." Then, um, just a couple more verses, chapter forty-four, verse sixteen. Um. Joseph meets his brother, Benjamin. And he places a silver cup in the sack of Benjamin and claims uh, to the terror of all the brothers that uh, Benjamin has done a wicked thing. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Um, they are tearing their clothes. They're in absolute grief. And in verse 16, it says, What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? At least regarding the cup. And then he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found uh, to have the cup. Okay, now we're going to go to chapter 45. And then uh, we'll try to put this in its context. Chapter 45, then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried. Do you notice that Joseph cries a lot? I have friends, they tend to be the bigger guys that are my friends, you know, big guys with really soft hearts. I don't know how big Joseph was, but I counted how many times Joseph cries in this story and it is the Jewish number for completeness. He cries seven times. You know, test me on this. He's weeping all the time. Weeping when he sees his brother, brothers. Now he's weeping uh, as does his brothers stand in his presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, "I am Joseph. Is my brother father still living?" But his brothers were not able to answer him because, I mean, they felt there was a noose around their neck. That's my translation. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "Come close to me." When they had done so, he said, "I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into, into Egypt." And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That really is the apex Of this story, right there. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. This is the word of our Lord. One of my purposes this morning is to go back to the central theme of the Bible. That is, God, the sovereign creator, ruler of the universe, rescues and redeems his creation. I said last week that in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord looked at the serpent and he made one of the most profound statements, powerful statement. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush, that is, the coming seed, the promised seed will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the rest of the Bible is the outworking of that redemptive plan as we look forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And yet, we, I find increasingly in our churches In the mainstream churches of our land, we're finding that that redemptive story is taking a back seat to other redemption stories. And so there's a couple of things that I want to talk about before we go right back into the story of Joseph. And it's an argument over the very nature of rescue and the rescuer that God performs. There's a British theologian named Steve Chalky. He was speaking on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and he said that the Father sending his Son to the cross amounts to cosmic child abuse. The Reverend Jeffrey John says that it is an insane and cruel doctrine. Emerging church leader Brian McLaren says that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement makes God out to be a butcher. So somehow there's this picture of God's rescue that changes from what we see in the scriptures and you, almost cannot, you can't change the nature of the rescuer without changing the nature of the rescue itself. Now imagine for a moment that I am laying in my bed and I'm awakened to the smell of smoke. I look and I see flames uh, and I, I, I look at my wife and I say, call the fire department. I try to tend to my family, which at this point is just my wife, but what I need is a fire department because the nature of the rescue requires an expert in fire. However, if I awaken in the middle of the night and I hear a bear coming in through my window, I don't call the fire department. I call the DNR. You don't call the same rescuer. You must change the rescuer because the nature of the rescue. And if I hear that bear coming into my house, I call for someone who understands Bears. When you change the nature of the rescue, you inevitably change the nature of the rescue. And what I mean by that is that there are teachings, and you'll find them aplenty on the Internet. There are those who argue that what we need more than anything is to be at peace with ourselves, peace with our world, at peace with our family, peace with ourselves. And so our rescuer is essentially a therapist. There are those who will say that what we really need is social justice, and believe me that there's nothing wrong with social justice. I'm talking now about the nature of the primary rescue that the Bible is about. And the Bible is about social justice, it's about finding peace in your heart, it's about a lot of other things, but what is the main theme that starts in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation? Others will say what we need is to be educated, turning the rescuer into a professor. Some will say health, wealth, and prosperity is what we need. Jesus becomes the bellhop of our lives. When we determine that man's greatest need is something other than the rescue that we find in Jesus Christ... It changes the way we look at God, it changes the way we look at man, it changes the way we look at scriptures. It does. You have to change the scriptures if Jesus isn't the savior he said he was. Now, we're looking at the Bible through the lenses of Joseph, the patriarchs, and we say that the Old Testament is the word of God. I got a call from an elderly man on the Navajo reservation a couple of years ago, and I don't know why he called me. He didn't divulge his name, but he said, I have stopped reading the Old Testament. It teaches me about a different God, and I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He says, I'm a Christian. I find my uh, theology in the New Testament. I have closed uh, the book on the Old Testament. And there are those who read the Old Testament as if it were a story like Aesop's ta- uh, fables and give you the moral of the story. How many of you read the, the story of David and Goliath and you know, came out of there wanting to run to the bay and found a, find a round stone and, and knock somebody out? No, that's Mike Meekoff talking, not you. But if you read the, uh, the story of David and Goliath as a moral tale, you can have a story about knocking off the giants in your life. But that's not what it's about, and we're going to see that in just a moment. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. And I know we have to be careful not to over-allegorize. To, alle- to, to look at an allegory means that there is a story, but it has hidden spiritual meaning. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that rock that Moses struck in the wilderness in anger at the Israelites and the water flowed out of that rock, Paul said, allegory, that's Jesus Christ. Out of Jesus, who was struck down on our behalf, come all the spiritual blessings of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. The Old Testament's full of allegory but it's full of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, there are a couple of guys walking. Jesus stands alongside of them, and they begin to talk. And the two guys look at Jesus and say, are you the only man in Jerusalem who doesn't understand what's going on these days? And Jesus is quietly saying, I'm the only guy who understands. And then Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. He didn't say, You should have understood my redemptive work on the cross. He says, You didn't listen to the prophets. John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says, but do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accusers, Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Who wrote the Pentateuch? Moses. The book of Genesis, like the book that, like the entire Old Testament is about Christ. Start looking for him. Now, we we find ourselves in the middle of the Joseph story. And there are uh, a sequence of events here that are really quite remarkable. And I am going to just highlight those because I talked about them in detail last week. But Pharaoh gets this interpretation from Joseph, likes it, and he says, you are second in command. Now notice, he gives him a signet ring. Uh, he, he gives him clothes that would rival the clothes of Elvis Presley in his prime. And he gives him the second chariot in the land. And what is comparable to a second chariot? I, I can only think of a Rolls Royce. Now, if you end the story, what you have is a man who's reached the pinnacle of the American dream, right? He's he's got it made. He gets an Egyptian name. He gets an Egyptian wife who who happens to have a father who uh, is the priest of the second most powerful god in all of Egypt, and that's the sun god, Ra. I like to call him Re. See, I don't even know what you're laughing about. Uh, There's a sequence of events. And what we're we're made to think here is that here is this guy who is a child of the covenant. He is to be a blessing and prosper in the the land of promise, but his brothers won't accept the word of God, but, but Pharaoh acknowledges that what Joseph said is from the gods. At least it's from joseph's god and now proceeds to try to turn joseph into the all-american dream he, he wants everybody to see this guy has power he's got it made in the shade joseph as the representative of true israel is not using power the way we typically see power he is using his power to get others to prosper He is a servant in the home of Potiphar. He is a servant in the prison. He is a light in these places. And it's because of God's intervention, continually God showing his people that Joseph is a man on whom God has placed his hand. And the dream of Egypt is not the dream that Joseph was called to. Now, I have had this happen not, not a lot of times, but I know pastors have had people come in, parents have come in, and in sadness, saying that their son or daughter has given him or herself over to a corporation, have caught this dream of material wealth and power, no longer with the people of God, no longer wanting to serve uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as a, uh, as, as a, with, a, with the heart of Jesus, and there are people who are just broken about that. Here we have Joseph in this place of power. And Jesus warns against power. Does he not? I mean, this is the, 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 not the place where we should be applauding. We should be praying for this man. It's a perilous moment. Jesus warns about those who lorded over others. He talks about those who would be great. If you're going to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. Servant power instead of pagan power. A dangerous point in his life. And so here we are, God taking his covenant people through Abraham, giving them a promise, and saying, this land is yours And through the promised seed, I am going to bring rescue. I'm going to bring salvation. And now it looks like we're getting a detour because uh, Joseph, the key of the story, is on the top of the heap. He really is. And what is this going to do? And uh, before I move on, I just want to remind you of what I said last week. A sure sign that Joseph was still an Israelite is he has two sons with Ashtonath, One's Manasseh and one's Ephraim. And he gives them both Hebrew names. He says, Pharaoh can give me an Egyptian name, but I get to name my sons. And he gave them covenant names. And do you remember how I translated the name of Manasseh. I said, with Manasseh, and we, can, we can look at it right here in our Bibles. He says, <clears throat> It's because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. It's not that Joseph had totally forgotten about his brothers, he didn't forget where he came from, he's let go of the sorrows and the brokenness and the pain. He's been able to let them go as a true representative of God in Israel. He's been able to say, I've traded my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. And everybody's saying, yeah, but, you know, it's Egypt that made you what you are. And Joseph's not buying it. He names his second son Ephraim. Ephraim. It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. That's irony, folks, because it doesn't look like he's suffering in Egypt. God has made him fruitful in the land of Egypt, and he calls it the land of suffering. And I I said last week that I I really believe that there are some of us who are way too at home in this world, as if this is the place where we've got to, to make it. This is the place where we have to gain our esteem. This is the place that where we have to get embedded. And you come to a missionary and ask him, why, why in the world would you go to the slums of Bangladesh? And that missionary would say, because I am going to a city whose foundations are built by the one and only by Jesus Christ. I have a home that awaits me, and the home that awaits me doesn't compare to the best that this world has to offer. Joseph has it made as it were, as it were by the American dream, by the by the covenantal dream, he has a long long way to go. All right. Now, you're still asking the question, and I know you rightly are asking this question. Mikoff, last week you said you were going to preach a sermon on what this story is really all about. And I said, it's not about Joseph. Joseph's call is to preserve the promised seed. But who's the promised seed? Do you know? It's a man called Judah. Now, I remind you of what God has said through the prophet Isaiah, what he said through Paul in Romans chapter 9. God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. And then he says through Paul, does the pot say to the potter, This is the way it is. And you'll notice that from that promised seed, the offspring of the woman, continually people get things mixed up. They're always wanting to switch the hands of the father to the firstborn or to this one or to that one. And that's not the way God would have it. Joseph said, I'm your brother. Come close to me. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me here to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God was showing me through dreams that this very moment would happen, Joseph says, that he would rescue you And your response was to kill the rescuer. Sound familiar? Jesus came to his own to rescue them, and he came to his own, and what did they do? They, from the beginning of the gospel all the way to the cross, had a plot to put him down, to kill him. What we find here is the pattern of a gospel story. Seed, land, and covenant the fall of man happened in genesis chapter 3 then there's that promise to satan going to crush the promised seed's going to crush your head the next chapter is the first murder recorded in the bible the seed of the serpent cain kills the seed of the woman abel why do i say that cain is the seed of the serpent because the apostle john said he was in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now we've got a problem. The promised seed is dead. But right after that, we're introduced to Seth. Then in chapter 5, there are ten generations between Adam and Noah through the godly line of Seth. God wipes out the world with a flood. The promised seed is preserved through Noah, who has three sons. And you say, whew. But you know what? If you're going to have promised seed and offspring, you've got to have wives. You get that? I Man, that's not profound. Noah's sons had wives. And one of those sons was named, his name was Shem. He was the promised seed. Eventually, we come to Abram. God makes a promise to Abram. Abram has two sons, but only one of them can be the promised seed. Interestingly, his his wife is beyond the seed-bearing age. God must intervene because it's almost laughable. And so what do they do? With lack of faith, they say, if God doesn't intervene, we're going to have to bring in Hagar. Hagar has a son whose name is Ishmael. He is a seed, but he's not the seed. Isaac has twins. Which one would be the promised seed? The firstborn? No, it's not. It's the younger Jacob. It's not about birth order. It's about election. Now Jacob has 12 sons. Which of these 12 sons is the promised seed? We don't know at first. It seems like it must be Joseph. But he's not the one. Joseph is there to make sure that the promised seed stays alive. You're following me. I know you are. The promised seed is from the woman that Jacob didn't love. Judah identifies himself just before Joseph identifies himself to his brothers the way a promised seed should identify himself. He demonstrates something of who a promised seed is. Benjamin is about to be put in prison. Judah, the promised seed, says to Joseph, this is going to kill my father. So Judah, the promised seed, offers himself as a substitute in the place of the one his father loves, which is exactly what the promised seed would do. But I don't want to run too fast. Here's this little gold star moment. Judah has a great, great, great grandson whose name is Boaz. Boaz married, say it loud, okay. Ruth had a son named, ha (laughs) ha, Obed. There you go. Uh, And Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of? David, David, the last of the sons of Jesse, tending to the flocks in the fields. And David becomes a promised seed. Judah's greater son, David, actually identifies himself as the promised seed, a promised seed, one day in the valley of Elah. There was a giant by the name of Goliath standing there. And he was challenging the people of Israel, mocking them, defiling Israel's God. And he's saying, have a man stand before me if he dares. He will represent Israel's God. I will represent the Philistine God. And I will wipe you people off the face of the earth. So David goes into the valley to face Israel's enemy, as get this Israel's covenant representative he defeats Israel's enemy on behalf of all of Israel which means that in the day on the day that David defeats Goliath Israel is victorious because Israel is in David the promised seed when he wins the victory but guess what there is a greater than David The promised seed. One who is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the scepter would never depart from his hands. All of Scripture is leading to the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ who entered the valley of sin and death. He faced sin, death, and the devil. And he came out victorious. That's our salvation. Amen? That's the story of the Bible. Joseph didn't go to Egypt so that we could tell our children, be faithful. And if you work hard, you'll be rich and famous. Joseph went to Egypt so that Judah, the promised seed, wouldn't starve and die, so that David, a promised seed, could be born, so that Jesus, the promised seed, could save his people. That's the point of the story of Joseph. Now next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at how Joseph deals with his brothers. And I want you to read this. And I want to ask you, knowing your life, knowing maybe the lives of your friends and of your family, How could you walk confidently into the presence of the prince and have him love you and care for you like this? And if Joseph isn't pointing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I don't know what this is about. And some of you are longing to see your loved ones again. Do you think God cares about that? Do you think that the resurrection is about that? I almost cried when I saw this for the first time. Joseph and Jacob thought that they would never, ever see each other again. People, there is a day on God's calendar when you're going to get reunited. It's already written. But more than that, because it takes eyes of faith to recognize, we are going to walk into the presence of Jesus Christ And Jesus Christ has prepared a place for us, and it's called home. This world is not my home. And again, I ask you, do not listen to the false teachers and the prophets who are offering you a gospel that's not the gospel. God is not against health, He's not even against wealth. He's made some of us very, very wealthy. But if that's our idol, if that's the focus of Scripture, if that's the message that we hear week after week after week, we will de- be depleted of the joy of our salvation. Amen? Amen? Let's come back next week as we look at the prince who becomes our brother. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is amazingly, incredibly good news. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we are here together in this place today to acknowledge that there is no God like Jehovah and to think of all that you've done all of the plans that were made all of your purposes working even through and orchestrating through the depths of sin and the darkness of rebellion in order that one day jesus christ would come our lord and savior we worship you today now it's our prayer give us strength we long for heaven but until we get to heaven you have placed us in jobs in families in communities where we represent jesus christ people in a dark growingly dark world need hope God, help us. Forbid that we just talk about the problems, but that we are part of the solution to the problem. And that is to present Jesus Christ. And if people slam the door on our faces, so be it. Lord, maybe you've planted a seed. So be it. We want to plant the seeds of the gospel in people's hearts. We pray, God, your will be done. Start right within our own hearts and lives. May your will be done in us. We have lots of questions. There are things that we still need to learn. We know that you are faithful to lead us along. You're going to open new days, doors. But also help us to be faithful within our families. Passing on this good news day after day with our children and with our grandchildren. Help us, we pray, for this is not an easy task. In fact, sometimes, Lord it gets downright discouraging. But you understand discouragement. And help us and prepare us as we truly believe we are in the last days that we are going to be persecuted for standing up for the gospel that we've looked at this morning. Help us to be willing to be persecuted for your sake. And then see the seeds of the gospel planted once more in the hearts of people have denied you bless this congregation continue to guide us through these messages and lord if there's anything that i've said that that isn't from you please forgive me but i pray that your word will go forth clearly and that we will respond with thanksgiving in jesus we say amen years I spent.